I'm Michael Barber, and this is the Accomplishment Podcast. As life returns to a more normal routine post-lockdown, it's easy to forget the disorder and chaos of the first weeks of the pandemic. Ordinary life closed up overnight, workplaces shut, and schools and universities sent their students home. My guest on this episode of the Accomplishment Podcast had just taken up her new role as CEO at UK Youth. Just a few weeks into the job, Ndidi Nkezi was faced with running and leading a network of thousands of youth organisations. Their mission? To inspire young people by unlocking youth work as a catalyst for change. The impact of lockdown on young people was huge. Suddenly, many were cut off from their only safe spaces in either school or youth centres. UK Youth's network had to reach them fast by accelerating digital outreach, but the youth sector also had to work out fast for itself how to survive. I asked Ndidi what kind of experience it was, not just for the young people she serves, but also for herself. We're actually a bit of a complex hybrid organisation. So we um, are an open network. So we have like over 8,000 youth organisations right across the UK right. that um, connect to us. We we have nation partners in all, you know, all the other nations as well. And so we deliver direct programmes as well. So we work with around 200 organisations who deliver our programmes. But on the whole, we are here to serve and support the youth sector in its broadest sense. I know for me as a leader, there was definitely a moment where it was very clear that we had to figure out how we were going to survive and yes. make sure that we could navigate our way through this. And UK Youth, we have an outdoor learning centre in the New Forest. We had to shut that down. That's £2 million gone from our budget it projected income that this year. You know, we had programme income that we had, we were committed to deliver that we could no longer deliver. So there was this kind of, we need to be here. We need to survive. How do we do that? But then much louder, we don't focus on we. Like, you know, there are thousands, millions of young people, you know, thousands of organisations. How do we show up for them? And if you remember, 2020 was when, you know, Black Lives Matter situation yes. kind of, you know, really imploded. And so we suddenly were equally you know, very much leaning into our advocacy work. And and I think actually, in hindsight, that ability to almost disconnect a bit from our immediate fire and just be very reactive and responsive to need saved us. And I think saved the sector in a lot of ways because what we were able to do was to claw our way around the tables of discussions that were focused on young people. So when education was convening, when health was convening, you know, we brought in the youth sector. We wanted to make sure that we were at the table as well, because we felt like it's not just, you know, now schools have shut down. You really need to know where young people are. These professionals know where they are. Let's work together. So there's a lot of acceleration, I think, that happened in terms of the collaboration across the different sectors. So as you come out of the intensive phase of the pandemic, let's say that lasted a year or two, and now you look ahead, because of what you've all been through, your own personal learning, your organisational development that you experienced, are you looking optimistically at the future for some new vision of what you could do for British youth? I think the other thing 
that just was really timely is that our new strategy was supposed to begin January 2020 as well. And so we actually spent a year having the opportunity to refine it and to really almost test it, but almost like in the dark, if that made sense, because we hadn't gone public with it. But actually everything that we said in our strategy proved to be not only ideal, but urgent. And so, you know, I think we actually have come out of it even more buoyed about the need for our strategy, which is ultimately about unlocking youth work. So, you know, UK Youth as an organisation, we exist to develop, strengthen, champion youth work, but we're working in partnership to unlock its power to strengthen society. And I think for me, that's the missing piece that is probably a bit of a game changer. I don't think enough of society understands the contribution youth work could make to all sorts of other things. And and there is real optimism now in terms of being able to really amplify that point. That's what we're we're trying to focus on. Do you detect among the young people you and your affiliated organisations are serving a sense of optimism about the future or are they overwhelmed? There's lots of evidence that mental health challenges are on the rise among young people. Mm. How should we think about the generation currently in our schools and coming into the future? I always say that when we as adults are talking, we should be careful to recognise that young people are listening to us in terms of how we talk about them. Because one of the things that I find is that there is huge challenge. I honestly don't know that we have fully reconciled with the impact of the pandemic on young people. I think we're going to be weeding our way out of that for for many years to come. I mean, my goodness, we're in an economic crisis now. There There are challenges around employability. Our priorities are now very unapologetically employability, mental health, you know, social action. These are things that young people are telling us are their priorities. And so, yes, there is real dire context in everywhere that you look, but... I would argue with any and everybody that the the seed of hope hasn't gone from young people. There is still that expectation that things have to get better, will get better. And I often think the reason why that might wean is when they hear us talking, (laughs) is when we are all kind of doomsday in and talking about, I don't know if you remember, Michael, there was a a bit around the, you know, the last two years where they were being described as the lost generation. Yes, I don't know if you remember seeing that. I mean, my heart, like just, where do you, where do we think they've gone? What do we mean lost? (laughs) Um, And, you know, imagine hearing yourself being described in that way. So I think there is hope, but I think it's fragile. And I think we have to demonstrate that generations before them have come through difficult times and they too can come through difficult times. In Accomplishment, my most recent book, which is published since since you took that job on, I talk in the last chapter, I look at the future, the big challenges facing humanity, mm. and I end up describing myself as a terrified optimist. So, <laughs> so terrified because you look at the risks of nuclear war and conflict, mm-hmm. you look at the climate change and the damage to the environment, and there's a whole lot of other things that I go into. But you have to be optimistic because you keep meeting people, especially in the younger generations who are really positive in spite of everything about how things could be improved. And I I do think you're right about the language people use. Whenever I heard 
the generation in universities described as snowflakes. I just mm. challenged it. It's so offensive because what I've met were optimistic, resilient people determined to make things better. Absolutely. And I think that the, the, the question I always ask in myself and, and challenging ourselves to think about is it's what the alternative is. If you're a young person and you don't have hope for the future, I shudder, right? What is that? In a lot of ways, we could argue it's okay for us. You know, we kind of, you just keep plodding along. Maybe your life just stays as it is. Maybe you don't have hope for things to improve. In any way. But for a young person who hasn't, you know, even started on their journey, the loss of hope is consequential um, and fundamental. And I, we have to protect that with everything. But as I said, it's not even ours to protect. It's there. It, it's refusing to die. And actually the thing that it's m- most threatening it is our dialogue and our pessimism. And so we have to catch up with where young people are and do our, play our part to ensure that what they're hoping on manifests. You mentioned your strategy and, and obviously you're now presumably taking that forward. If your strategy succeeded, how would things be different in one, two or three years? What are the aspirations or goals that you've set for your strategy? A really succinct way of thinking about it is the kind of ultimate impact we're looking to create is a society that understands, champions and delivers effective youth work for all for me, there's so much in that because youth work is not understood. Even where it is understood, it's not always celebrated and valued. And then, you know, in terms of delivering quality, there's obviously lots of work to do there as well. But the thing for me is a society. The one thing that I said to the sector coming in, it was so interesting, Michael, I never thought I was an outsider till I entered the youth sector. I've spent over 20 years working with young people. You kind of think you're you're in the same space. Um, But no, no, I was a teacher. So that wasn't different. So I I was coldly awoken to that reality. But one of the things I think I was able to agitate was if the youth sector continues to talk to itself, um, nothing is going to change, right? So we we have to start talking to other um, spaces. We can't be the only people who understand what youth work is and champion it. And so our strategy is very much about building that cross-sector awareness because we want other professionals to be demanding for quality youth work services around them. And I don't think we're that far from it. That's one of the, dare we say, silver linings of this whole kind of COVID period. We saw acceleration, right? We saw what happens when you don't have a choice, how quickly you can move barriers out of your way. And so we don't want to let go of that. And so I still believe that, you know, in the next two, three years, we can get to a place where youth work is championed and it's delivered at such a quality that it is transforming communities alongside other professionals. And who do you need to lobby or press? Youth work doesn't get much attention in the media. It's rarely a priority for governments. And sometimes it's a priority for local authorities, but they've been under a lot of financial pressure. Who who do you need in your coalition to realise the future you're describing? Yeah, great point. Over the past 10 years, I think it's, this is a, a... a generous estimation, but like almost a billion pounds has been taken out of the youth sector in terms of funding. And so everything that you've just said is is apparent in terms of its current um, perception and value. This might just be my bias from my lens, but I think when people think about young people, this this actually was a bugbear of mine when I was working um, in education and, you know, for Teach First and Pearson. 
every challenge that young people had or didn't have, the automatic fallback was schools. Everyone, oh, young people don't know how to do this. They need to be taught in schools. Oh, young people are not doing this. We need to do it. And this constant pressure and expectation that teachers could be all things to all young people was just so damaging in so many ways. And even I back then didn't understand that the solution or part of the solution that I was um, calling out for was, was the youth sector. So for me, the number one advocate that we need is the education sector. We yeah. need um, the schools and teachers to recognise and stop apologising for not being able to be all things to all young people. And so instead of figuring out how do we get teachers to work harder and longer and put on more things, the question should be how do we get schools to partner more with other professionals and how do we get the DFE to work with the DCMS and you know all of these different bodies that have like fragmented young people how do we get them to come together and realize that you know young people are whole and so the services that work with them should operate in holistic ways as well. At the moment uh, as you know because you are an outstanding teacher yourself that teachers are in school 195 days a year and students, pupils are there 190 days and you've got the five professional development days for the teachers. But what if you funded for the pupils, let's say 195 days, so you added five days to their learning year, but you actually reduced their days in school to 180. And then in the other 15 days, the young I'm talking about secondary age students Mm -hmm, mainly here, mm -hmm. they can choose with advice from maybe a youth worker, mm-hmm. maybe a school, maybe and, and involving the parents, obviously, they can choose a range of learning opportunities. They could go and organise a uh, thing and climb Snowdon. They could go and spend 10 days with a family in Toulouse and uh, improve their French. They mm-hmm. could do a whole range of sporting, dramatic, artistic activities. Every museum in the country could put on programmes that these students could choose and they'll be funded. So your learning year gets longer, but Mm -hmm. your school year gets shorter and you generate this vibrant range of providers outside of the school system who provide opportunities for young people. Would that help? Is it just a a pipe dream or is it unworkable? No, I absolutely love that. And the reason why I think that has such strength is because I do think we we have to think at a systems level and we have to do things in a way that embeds the solution and, you know, removes it out of the whims of kind of the the leader of the moment or the, you know, something that really is about the, the systemic experience that young people have. I guess the only thing that I would add to that is that I think some of that funding needs to be used to ensure that there is year round local youth provision so that that young, those young people in their neighbourhoods have a place they can go at weekends, after school, before school. There is a, a space that that they can call their own that um, is available to them above and beyond the kind of you know experiences that they may have on those days. I think imagine communities that are able to fund provision in that systemic way. Not only is that brilliant, I don't think it's that far-fetched an idea. Like it literally is a bold secretary of state that can kind of lean into something like that. It's within arm's reach. The beauty of it, because it goes back to a previous point you were making, which is it's not older people saying, this is what you need. 
it's saying you can choose what you do. Yeah. So you're, put, you're putting you in charge of this. Yeah. So you, you give the initiative there, obviously with guidance from mm-hmm, youth workers, mm-hmm. teachers, whatever. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I think this point about agency, again, goes back to my broader point about being able to recognise the value that youth work has on society more generally. Just Let's just think about the, how powerful it is for you as an individual to recognise your own sense of agency and yeah. to recognise the power that you have in choice. And think about the spaces where you've learned that. And the reality is school isn't always the place where you figure out your own sense of agency, right? You're on a path, you've got choices, limited choices you can make. But yet all of us looking back, we understand how important that learning is, that self-discovery, that understanding about decisions. These are things that pay dividends in all facets of our lives. And I don't think that we're intentional enough about where and how we support young people to develop such things. And that is the heart of youth work. That is what youth work is about. It's at that young person's own agenda. They're literally there by their own making. You know, we sit back and we think, oh, you know, employers keep talking about people not being work ready. Is it just skills or is there something else about, you know, the the way of thinking, the way of being, the way of understanding who you are? And is schools the place you always learn all of those things? And this is somebody who, by the way, I'm unapologetic about the fact that schools are for all sorts of things beyond academic. It's not about academic at all. But schools do have certain structures they need. My only question to everybody is when you think about where you learn these things, what were those experiences? What were those yeah. moments? And then the question is, do all young people have the opportunity that you had? Do all young people have the intentional experiences that you know have shaped who you are today? Very often those big learning experiences are when you're, to use the jargon, pushed outside your comfort zone. 100%. You're put in a new situation. Every time I edited a white paper or a green paper, wherever it said children's needs or young people's needs, I always put in young people's needs and aspirations. We, we have to unlock their aspirations as well as tackle their needs. It's almost like what comes even before aspiration, Michael, because there's a seed that births aspiration that sometimes young people, they may not even know they aspire to that, right? And right. so for me, there's something about exposure. The more you yes. are exposed, I think the more your aspirations have the opportunity right. to, to be sparked, basically. You had a very successful career in Teach First, both as a teacher and then in the organisation itself. Where did your aspirations come from? That's such a good question. Um, it's funny. The, as soon as you say that, I think I think of those moments, but funnily enough, they, they kind of did the opposite thing. I don't know how to explain it, but basically I think there were, there were definite m- these milestone moments in my life that I think unlocked a sense of determination or desire for something different. Right. And so, you know, I I often talk about these very explicit moments. One of them was, you know, going to visit Warwick University, wanting to go to a campus university, having read all sorts of books where that was what was going on and that was what I was visualising and I couldn't think of a a more exciting life than to walk across fields, to go to different buildings to learn. Um, And so Warwick, I fell in love with it from the pictures and I went there and um, very, very quickly 
felt like I didn't belong and felt like this wasn't for me because I didn't see anyone that looked like me. And I was there on my own. Everybody else was there with parents and families. And I didn't even know that was a thing. And just this sense of I'm wrong. And and whereas in that moment I retreated and I decided, oh, it's not for me. And I went somewhere far more comfortable. Um, that feeling stayed with me such that it irritated and angered me because I, and I, I didn't want anyone else to have to feel that. And I think that really set my life on a very right. different trajectory if I hadn't experienced that. It's just one of those moments where you realise your difference and you realise that you're not the same and you can react to that in, in many ways. And I've had so many conversations with young people about the moment when you realise you're different and whether that means that you retreat or that you kind of lean in. And I think that's a real decision, you know, kind of juncture that people have to come to. That's very powerful. And if somebody had a series of defeats, it might set them back for a lifetime, mightn't it? A hundred percent. So, and how did you personally find the resilience or inspiration to turn that round, that, that experience you had? If I'm being really honest, I'm you know at the time obviously I didn't I didn't go to Warwick I didn't you know I got right. I got grades I didn't I didn't go to like you know the full extent of what I was able to do and in a lot of ways I'm I still regret that not because I wanted you know I, I went to Brunel University I had an amazing time it was brilliant but I still feel like I let myself down because yeah. I know the reason I didn't was because of, of fear and so. Um, I don't think in that moment I was able to overcome it. I made a different choice. But what I think I've been able to do is to not let that feeling ever, ever stop me again. I constantly feel that way <laughs> still to today. And rather than retreat, I lean in. Like I lean into the discomfort because it is just that voice in the back of my head that says, I don't want anyone else to ever have right. to face this. So let, let me lean in. It's a, it's a really important point about taking a lesson from a setback. Was there somebody you turned to? Was there a mentor, a friend, a parent, a teacher that helped you with that? Or did you was, was it all inside you? The thing that is kind of a very important grounding force for me is my faith. And I think yes. in a lot of ways, I definitely turn to my faith. And there's always been a sense of needing to play your role in society, make a contribution. And I'm very, very influenced by the kind of people that have come before me and my forefathers. And, and, you know, in so many ways, I think about the fact that I couldn't live the life that I live now if it wasn't for the sacrifices of other people, even down to the, you know, literally laying their life down to allow me, right. a woman, a black woman, an immigrant to kind of be able to do the things that I'm doing now. So there's such a huge sense of responsibility to pay it forward that I think I carry with me that is very much grounded in my faith. Um, but I also know that for me, my friends were very, very important to me at that right. point. And that core group of people that were able to be a voice of reason, a voice of why can't we? And like, and again, talk, thinking about all the different conversations I've had with young people, that age old, who you surround yourself with, um, you know, show me your five closest friends. I'll show you your future. Like right. I believe that. I believe right. that so much. And, you know, that's why it's so important 
for people to be surrounded by groups and, and voices that challenge support and not just kind of cosign um, nonsense. Um, so yeah, I would say that my friends have played a very important role over the, those those moments as well. Yeah, because when I uh, in in my book accomplishment that prompted this this set of um, uh, of podcasts. One thing that's really clear is almost no one achieves great things all on their own without any mm-hmm. help from anybody. And in mm-hmm. fact, the vast majority of people will tell you there are these four or five people I couldn't have done it without them. Hundred um, percent. And, and you're you're absolutely reinforcing that. So coming to the end of our conversation, indeed, which I've really enjoyed. When you think about the next ten to twenty years, either for yourself or for the young people you represent and lead. What makes you optimistic? What makes you afraid? What are you going to do about it? I'm with, with you. I am a terrified. <laughs> I'm not even terrified. So oh, that's good. the part. I'm I'm dogged. Oh, I'm because I don't know what the alternative is. So I just I, I have the kind of maybe naive optimist is the best. Yeah. Term. Well, Bill Clinton once <laughs> said. Bill Clinton once said nobody wants to be led by a pessimist, and it is very. It's a very true thing. So. Um, but no, I am I am resolute that the future is bright. It has to be, but it doesn't mean it's going to be easily won. And I think yes. I'm I'm very much armored up in terms of the fight that's ahead. I'm up for the fight, but I know that the, the future is worth it. I really believe in the generation of young people that are that exist now. I think they are phenomenal in more ways than many of our of their predecessors have been. And so if we look at what generations of young people have done in the past, there's no social movements that young people have not played a leading, if not the leading role in, right? Think about that. And so if I think that young people today um, have more tools, have more audacity in lots of ways than their predecessors, the future can only be bright. So the question is, are we able to channel that potential that they have to serve the greater good? And are we able to be allies in a way that they need? And I think there is this thing about working alongside young people, not, not working act to them. And, you know, this whole idea of young people, the leaders of tomorrow, you know, the leaders of today. And I go back to the sooner we can get them to realise in their power agency and value today, the sooner that hopeful future will materialise. So I am very, very bullish about it. And and what I'm going to do to your question is every day I'm going to get up and ask myself, am I playing my role to the fullest extent that I can? Because that's what I exist to do. That That's my contribution. That's my baton in this relay race of life. And I know I am not going to drop that for any reason. Brilliant. That's a wonderful, very, very powerful finishing thought. Thank you very much indeed. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much, Michael. It's a real honour to be here talking to you. Thank you for listening to the Accomplishment Podcast and my thanks to guests and DD and Casey. You can get in touch with me on Twitter at MichaelBarber9 and feel free to suggest guests whose stories of change you'd like to hear. There's also a book that accompanies this podcast, Accomplishment, How to Achieve Ambitious and Challenging Things, published by Penguin. Don't forget to review the Accomplishment Podcast and to subscribe so you don't miss great game changers telling their stories on how to get things done.
This podcast is produced by Siobhan O'Connell, thanks to her and to the rest of the team.